This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode, some local hotspots are reopening. But in order to go to these places, there are going to be some new rules to follow. You have to be very thoughtful. There's no guidebook or guideline on this. We we did consult with uh, Vancouver Coastal Health and Dr. Patty Daly. She's been terrific at her team and telling us things to think about. Local sports teams are spending their time off helping out the community. We're doing well so far and we're really grateful for our fans that are engaging with us and it's been it's been a unique time and the province and the federal government have reached a memorandum of understanding with hereditary leaders of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation and elected chiefs though they have questions we have not received any information from the office of Wet'suwet'en nor have we received any information from Scott Fraser or Carolyn Bennett that this was moving forward we have received no indication whatsoever that and much more coming up on the mornings with Simi podcast That is the sound of what it was like in the capital of Michigan yesterday, where hundreds of heavily armed people in some cases gathered to protest the stay-at-home orders and the lockdown situation. To talk more about this and what else is happening in the U.S. today, we're joined by Washington correspondent for Global News, Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Happy Friday. Reggie, those were some scary pictures that I saw out of Michigan yesterday. They they were, and they kind of echo the, the anger and frustration that Americans across the country have been feeling as they gather in these protests. You know, now in Michigan, they've been happening throughout North Carolina, throughout parts of Georgia, through the Midwest over the last couple of weeks or so, really pushing back on governors that are insisting that the economies and that the, uh, that the cities need to be shut down in order to kind of continue that slowing of the spread. But yesterday's uh, in Michigan kind of has been the most dramatic so far, and they almost take on that sense of a political campaign. Campaign when they're walking, they're saying that the First Amendment is being trampled right now and the Second Amendment. These are very dangerous situations, uh, particularly when, you know, governors are simply just trying to keep people healthy. Well, when you have lawmakers on the floor of the state legislature wearing bulletproof vests so that they can cast their vote, uh, that I, I just couldn't believe that was happening. I mean, it goes to show the, 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 the anger and the confusion that this virus has across this country, but also the mixed messaging that has come from all different levels. When you have the federal government saying, look, you can go ahead and start opening your governments. You can go ahead uh, and, and ease your social distancing regulations. But then you have individual governors saying, no, we're not quite ready to do that. But to make things even worse for the situation in Michigan, the president just within the last six minutes has put a tweet out saying the governor of Michigan should give a little and put out the fire, essentially saying that the governor needs to bow to these people who are protesting against her, despite the fact that it is her call. Yeah, it looked a lot more like threatening rather than protesting yesterday. But I know that's been happening in a lot of places. I also want to just touch uh, on the American presidential election race uh, and Joe Biden. It feels like we haven't talked about this in a long time, but we have to today for sure, because he's had these uh, allegations of um, uh, sexual assault leveled against him by someone who used to work in Washington. He addressed those today for the first time. He did. He used cable TV to kind of put his statement out there uh, and say, uh, you know, essentially that they, quote, aren't true and never 
happened. This is uh, all linked to an assault accusation against the, f- the the former vice president back in the early 1990s when he was a senator. Uh, Tara Reid was a staffer, says that she was uh, assaulted, uh, that the president made an unwanted, that the vice president made an unwanted move against her, yeah. uh, and that she did file a complaint. Now, Joe Biden is saying, look, this didn't happen. This isn't true. This is unequivocally false. Nobody can back up this story. And he's actually calling on the National Archives to open up all of the documents that they would have received about this claim uh, to see whether or not there is any kind of information in there. The, uh, in Delaware, the University of Delaware, where most of his records are kept, they aren't releasing anything, but the National Archives has a copy of this, and he's saying that is what's going to actually help clear his name. But this is you know, a reminder that, A, we are in an election season, and yeah. B, these candidates uh, are going to be facing new scrutiny once we get through this crisis. This also seems to be the one area that even the president was not willing to go after Biden on. Well, and I mean, there are a couple of, uh, you know, sides to this sword right now. Uh, Republicans are going to pounce to say, look, Democrats only believe an accuser if they're going after a right. conservative person. But they also understand that if they open up that door, they're going to run the risk of the president's accusations against him from 2016 coming back to the spotlight in an election year. And they understand they have to tread very carefully with this right now, as does the president. Now, the president, though, I've noticed a different tone the last day or two. Uh, it does sound like he's trying a bit harder in terms of empathizing. Uh, well, I mean, it, 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 he's he's trying to. And it, I, are you talking about the, the Joe Biden thing? Or are you talking well, about no, the... I'm just saying in general, like with the COVID-19 situation, <laughs> well, it does I mean, it, sound a bit more like that. Yeah, I mean, look, the president understands that there is significant pressure that is building on him, both in the fact that it's an election year and he needs to ensure that every step he takes is correct if he wants to stay in office, but also understanding that the situation is not as under control as he once thought that it was, as we have now surpassed those best case numbers of 60,000 deaths in the U.S. with some models saying it could be over 100,000 by the end of May. There's a lot of pressure that the president is feeling right now, which is why he's trying to push forward to try and get vaccines done so that he can simply say, look, I did everything that I could to try and protect Americans. So much going on. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. As you can tell, there is so much going on. I mean, the United States still very much dealing with some pretty high COVID-19 numbers, but you have these ongoing debates and battles in different states about opening things back up. And is that too soon or not? For instance, in Michigan, Reggie and I were talking about this. Uh, so they had this huge debate. They had these protesters, have some of them heavily, heavily armed. Faces covered the whole thing. You had lawmakers wearing bulletproof vests on the legislature floor. So the lawmakers voted uh, about uh, ending the uh, stay-at-home orders, but they're not actually in the authorization position to do that because the Michigan governor then just went ahead and extended uh, her order for keeping the stay-at-home order in place. So that battle is not yet finished in Michigan, and I'm sure other states will be discussing this as well. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of the discussion, I would say most of it right now, especially here in BC, is about reopening. When are we going to get things moving again? Well, we know we're going to be hearing from the Vancouver Park Board this morning about that. Some of the things that they're opening, like golf courses and Van Dusen. Uh, but we're waiting for the plan from the province, which is expected to come uh, next week. That, according to Premier John Horgan. Other jurisdictions, though, 
farther ahead of us on this. We know that overseas in Denmark, for instance, about two weeks ago, they began reopening things like hair salons and tattoo parlors. They sent kids grade six and under back to school too. So we wanted to find out how it's been going there now that we're past that kind of first two weeks, that critical 14-day period. Joining us now is former CKNW reporter Shane Woodford, who is in Denmark. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good, thank you. So how are things there? Because that 14-day period is so important. Yeah, it's the incubation period of the virus, uh, roughly. Um, So uh, the pros and cons are, first, the positive news. There's been no large explosion in cases or the number of virus deaths. They've stayed more or less around 150 or so, give or take, new cases each day. Um, deaths are sort of in the 10 lives lost per day. Sometimes it's a few people less, sometimes it's a few people more. So there's been no wild explosion there. The two um, concerning factors uh, that are kind of piquing some interest here, one is the R factor, which is the reproduction factor of the virus. Roughly that means how many people uh, can be infected by one contagious person potentially wandering around. Uh, epidemiologists here are using that as sort of a, a good sort of um, way marker as we try to chart this path into into reopening. And it was when the lockdown was in full effect, rated a 0.6, which is really good. Anything under a 1 is considered a decline in the infection rate. But since reopening some uh, just over two weeks ago now, it's crept up to 0.9, and that's caused a little bit of concern. Uh, The other thing is with the schools in grade five and under, there's, of course, pressure now what to do with grade six and up. Uh, There's been some talk here in Denmark about trying to get them back in. When are they going in? How do we do that? But there's been a concerning development there, and that is the number of infections, although declining overall in Denmark, have doubled in the age groups of 13 to 19. And that's because, according to officials, that group is just, you know, that's the sort of independent, rebellious age, and they're kind of doing their own thing. They're not really paying attention to the news and, you know, maybe floating the guidelines, that kind of thing. So they were called out a little bit yesterday. Uh, by the health authorities here in Denmark. So, and, and we're not talking like a large number of cases in the age group. We're talking roughly, it would be equate to about you know, 11 right. cases per 100,000 in the population. But when you are on the precipice of looking at, okay, how do we get these kids back to school? And you notice without them being in school, the infection rates are doubling among that age group. It certainly is cause for concern. So how are the people dealing with this? Like, are they, did they jump all in when, you know, these things got lifted or are they being a little bit more careful? People here are cautious. I mean, there's obviously debate and argument as there is anywhere else. But uh, one thing that struck me about sort of uh, living through this here in Denmark is how, uh, the society has been really largely a can-do society. You don't see people freaking out and carrying on demonstrations about lifting lockdown rules. Danes are very much like, okay, we, we kind of get it. This is serious. How do we go about doing it? There was some kickback on even schools going in. I know there's a Facebook group created by a concerned mother who was worried about you know kids being used as guinea pigs, that kind of thing. Uh, so there has been a little bit of pushback. By and large, most Danes are like, okay, let's let's take this slow, let's take this steady. Uh, and the government has been sort of uh, benefiting from the support of the people so far. Interesting. And how many, like you said, daily cases now in Denmark, what would you say those numbers are? Yeah, roughly, I mean, they float a bit, right? But they're roughly in the 130 to 150 
new cases a day. Deaths range from, you know, eight today. Uh, you know, it can be nine, 10, 11, 12. They roughly stayed in that, in that neighborhood. So again, there's been no large explosion. Um, that said, like I mentioned in the, the reproduction factor, that kind of thing, I know that other countries here are watching Denmark closely as you guys are over there to see what's going on. So while Finland is going to open schools May 14th by judging what Denmark is doing, uh, Germany, on the other hand, has actually cited the, the rise in the, reproduc- the viral reproduction rate here in Denmark as a concern enough that they're pressing pause and reopening schools there. I find that really interesting, though, because the numbers, because, you know, B.C. and Denmark have a similar population. I think it's 5.8 million in Denmark, about 5 million here in B.C. And we've averaged, you know, between 30 to 50 cases for the last couple of weeks. So Denmark still has Mm. a relatively high number of new cases every day. Yeah, yeah. And, And it's funny where they're located, too. I was looking at a, they're really good on sharing information here. Um, and there's a map of the country, and it was using sort of color schemes to demonstrate where the virus was hitting the strongest. Now, Copenhagen, the capital city, the largest city, is an obvious one. That was shaded a deep navy blue for one of the hardest-hit regions. But weirdly enough to me, Aarhus, which is the second-largest city, and Odense, the third-largest, and the one closest to me, um, they were negligible. They were in the very low range of the scale. There was barely any cases at all there. But yet there was also outbreaks in what would be considered um, Danish cottage country south of Copenhagen or really rural farmland area in the middle of Uland. Uh, so that was, it was really funny how the virus hit Denmark. You would expect the heavy population centers to sort of be give me's, but, yeah. uh, but not so much the case. So fascinating. Well, Shane, thanks so much for keeping us up to date. Yeah, my pleasure. Always good to talk. And we'll talk to you soon. That is Shane Woodford, of course, former CKNW reporter now in Denmark, uh, letting us know how things are going there. So when you take a look at the population numbers, like BC and Denmark, similar in size, as I said, Denmark about 5.8 million people, BC a little over 5 million people. Uh, But COVID-19 numbers are different. Higher daily numbers in Denmark, higher daily death numbers in Denmark as well. And yet they are kind of on this path to reopening things, including schools, as Shane was just talking about there. We, of course, have been told that our plan is coming next week. I think this weekend is going to be a good harbinger for that as well. Just being able to see how many people are going to be out and about, because certainly you've noticed, I've noticed there are more people out and about, right? There is more traffic on the roads. It just seems busier than it has been, say, three, four weeks ago. So it, the government, to me, better be, get on this bandwagon here, better start telling people what this is going to look like, because I think some of us are getting a little impatient out there, given that I think overall BC is doing a really good job with the numbers. Like It worked. We did flatten that curve here. Now people want to start getting back into things. Now, would, are you ready to do that? Because some people will still be very cautious, and rightfully so. I think I'm not. I'm not into getting into big crowds or anything, or standing too close to people. Still, so we're still going to be quite cautious. Are you ready though to start opening things up again, like we just heard them doing in Denmark? This is mornings with Simi. Well, now I just want to get up and dance, right? Because that's what that song does for you, even though it is. Uh, 619 on a Friday morning. I bet Nikki Reitmeyer feels that way, don't you, Nikki? Get out of bed and come on, do a little dance for us. 
I'll meet you halfway there. I'll do the hand motions, the <laughs> YMCA, but my body is still in bed. But oh, the hands okay. are going. Well, the hands are going. I guess I'll have to take that. There's some songs that just make you want to do that. This is one. I heard one as well on my way into work this morning, and that was Boney M's uh, Rasputin, like Ra Ra Rasputin, Lover Ooh. of the Russian Queen. Great song that had me yeah. singing in my car very loudly all the way to work this morning. That gets the knee kind of bobbing, doesn't oh, it? Oh, sure does. Love that song. And well, this song makes me want to like drop to one knee and clench a fist and just passionately sing into a microphone. Of course, the Queen song, We Are the Champions. Yes. Oh, a legendary song. So full of passion. So great. Adam Lambert, of course, with Queen does a great version of it. But to celebrate healthcare heroes, they actually re-released a new version of it. It rocks just as hard. Adam Lambert's voice. I mean, it's unreal. So in the video, it just came out early today, you can see Brian May, Roger Taylor, and Adam Lambert, Lambert just belting out the tune. I mean, listen to this. skeptical of Queen being able to continue on without Freddie Mercury, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. But Adam Lambert has been amazing for them. Oh, he's been unreal for them, but he's got the pipes. He's got the pipes to be able to to follow in Freddie Mercury's legacy and his footsteps. And I think, yeah, at first, you know, you're always skeptical when you hear that someone else is not only going to be filling in uh, for the band member that you so loved and remembered from growing up, but the lead singer. I mean, how do you just replace the lead singer? But Adam Lambert actually did that uh, Actually, did that pretty well. Now, interesting, remember when we went down to Las Vegas together last fall, in, when times were much different, and we went and saw the Eagles in concert, and Glenn Fry's son was standing in for Glenn yes. Fry, and he was unreal. Yeah, and Vince Gill was also there because he sang the songs that kind of Glenn Fry used to sing for mm-hmm. the Eagles, and that I'm going to write a book about that weekend at some point, Nikki, because it was so entertaining. But um, Please, don't. Con- Please don't. If you do, then change my name to something else. For- oh, I'll have to. The, that concert was just the greatest concert I've ever seen. And I saw ELO last year, too, which was another amazing concert. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Deacon Fry did a great job. Yeah, he really did. Because even when he sang the point of the parts of his dad, I mean, he played guitar and everything, but, you know, he came out and he, he sang his dad's songs and he thought, whoa, I mean, this kid, again, it's it's tough to fill in for a singer because your voice has to be similar enough that the crowd's going to buy it, that the crowd's going to go, oh, okay, well, you know, this sounds pretty good. He there's, was bang on. There's the guy who also replaced Steve Perry for Journey. Uh, and, you know, you'd think Steve right. Perry, irreplaceable, can't do that. But his name is Arnel Pineda. He is absolutely amazing. He's a Filipino singer and songwriter, but he sounds just like Steve Perry. And they've been able to tour again. You hear him and you, you're just like, you're blown away. You go, I, I can't believe this guy. He makes all these Journey songs come alive again. Oh, Simi, I'm feeling a little nostalgic right now talking about all the bands we love to see in concert. <laughs> Remember the good old days when we could get together in a crowd of 40,000 people uh, in an arena and watch a band that we love listen, just belt out the tunes? Getting out of a concert is always, to me, the worst part of going to a concert. You know, like when it's all over and then you're like leaving and you're all crammed in there together. I Right now, that just kind of sends shivers up my spine, the thought of being that close to so many people. 
There's three types of people at a concert, Simi. There's the people who stay until the bitter end, the lights are up, and they're still there looking for guitar picks after the show is done. <laughs> There's people who they leave, you know, the last song is done, okay, we all cheer, and then they filter up the stairs very slowly, one foot at a time to get out of the arena. Then there's the people who leave before the encore to yeah, get because out they want to get out of there before it gets too busy. <laughs> yes, before the because they know that the streets are going to be crazy outside. Let's I, get to the car quickly and let's get out of here before we're going to beat the crowd. I Those think are you're three types of people. Amazingly accurate, and I'm going to go a little bit off topic here, but I've had this conversation with Bruce Allen. I don't understand the point of the encore. I really don't. We all know you're going to come out again, and we all know you're going to sing like one or two more songs. Why not just do it all at once? Like, what's the point of the encore? It's just like this thing that we, this act we all go through now at the end of a concert. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? Because, I mean, they go backstage and we go, oh, come back out. Please come back out. Oh, please come back out. Your name, your name, your name. (laughs) And we know they're coming back out. They know they're coming back out. We know they're coming back out. They come back out. They play the last two songs that we know they're going to play because they haven't played them yet in the set. And then, okay, now we're all done. And you go, like... But you're true. You're right. It's yeah. It's just kind of this act that we all go through. We all know what's going to happen, but well, let's go through the motions anyways. <laughs> I know we do. Well, I'm going to check that Queen song out there too because uh, I've been very much admiring what they're able to do, and that's nice that they're releasing a tribute song. Yeah, it is really nice. And the nice thing as well is not only is the song going to raise some spirits because it really is a positive, fun song, You Are the Champions, but the proceeds will be going to the World Health Organization's COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund. I like it. uh, Yeah, all in all, a really nice, a really positive story. I do want to mention very quickly, if you are driving to a great song this afternoon that you absolutely love, maybe you saw the band in concert years ago and it makes you want to put your foot down on the pedal, don't please resist. Yeah, I know that the roadways are a little bit more empty now than they typically have been. I think we've all seen some drivers going a little bit faster than they should be or acting a little bit crazier, it seems, right now. Well, here's a story for you. A driver on the North Shore. So this is a 19-year-old guy from Vancouver. He was driving a BMW X3. He was busted on Highway 1 near the Westview exit doing double the speed limit. An 80-kilometer zone, he was clocked doing 167 kilometers an hour. You've got to be kidding me. And not once, but twice, it sounds like, they caught this guy doing this. Well, I'm not surprised. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Amy. Good advice there. I know we love our music, but don't put the pedal down while you're listening to your favorite song on the radio because the police are on it. This is Mornings with Simi. I want to tell you about a cool little fundraiser that is happening in Surrey that we wanted to give a shout out to. Surrey United Soccer Club uh, is running a symbolic 6,000 kilometers in support of the people of Nova Scotia. So why these 6,000 kilometers? Because that is the distance between BC and Nova Scotia. So how they're doing this? Players individually record how far they have been running on their own, and then the total all gets added up. And how long do they have? Players have from April 25th, so it's already started, to May the 9th, another week, to complete this challenge. Jeff Clark is the technical director of Surrey United, and he explains how he came up with the idea. The soccer community is small, and I I do know a lot of people that work in the game that may not live in Nova Scotia any longer, but may be working, some in Vancouver, some across other provinces. And when the news broke last weekend, I was gripped to all the the news releases and, you know, you're just praying for people in general. It's just a real, real 
tragic time, the compounding of the social distancing and these people, they can't even get together. I was very empathetic and just felt awful. So then it just kind of tied in. We were meeting daily given um, all of the, the COVID shutdowns and and one of our internal challenges is we have all of our members on uh, self-isolation. So we're trying to create programs and and incentives and challenges for them to keep training, be healthy, get outside. And also, like, there's a big part of, like, the, the mental health. We want to connect with them. We want them to know we're thinking about them. So on a daily, we're just trying to spice things up. But now you're you're in week six, week seven of this, and it's growing exponentially more challenging. So I guess I was, I was on a, a work call, and there was a news story on the TV in the background, and I just threw it out. If we could just tie a lot of the, the training we, we hope our, our members are doing, and if we can somehow track the amount of kilometers they're running, it's kind of a coast-to-coast challenge. Um, so geography makes it kind of neat. So we just slapped on a 6,000-kilometer uh, a goal, and it's just really taken off. <laughs> it was, like I say, it was kind of like a water cooler type idea, and now I'm getting... We're getting messages on social media, direct messages of like, you know, parents and grandparents that are getting out with the athletes and they just want to support this. And how could like, where do I sign up and how do I get going on this? So it it surpassed what we had sort of entered into uh, starting. We have clubs in other provinces and, and other clubs in Vancouver asking how they can get involved. So it's, it's kind of snowballed. It's really nice because, you know, people in Halifax, Nova Scotia, they're seeing the social media and they're just they're thanking the, the people and, the, and the, the members just for the thought. And, you know, it's a, it's a drop in the ocean with what these, these people need. But if the shoe was on the other foot, you would love that reciprocation or that support from people in your community. I think that's very true. If the shoe were unfortunately on the other foot with what Nova Scotia is going through, support from right across the country, I think would would very much feel good. Like you'd welcome that. So he also said it's symbolic that the distance between BC and Nova Scotia is being used as a way to bring those two provinces closer together. The kilometers that separate us are it's just an obstacle and we're going to overcome that. And our goal is to get our 6,000. We will get there. And when we do, we just want, you know, the members to know uh, the efforts that went into that. They were all for them. The way that sport can can heal and can provide some of the, the solace that these people need. Now that is Jeff Clark, technical director of Surrey United. They are a uh, soccer club in Surrey, and they are running 6,000 kilometers symbolically to support the people of Nova Scotia. It's a great idea. So players have to individually run, record how far they run, and then they total it all up, see if they can get to 6,000 kilometers by May the 9th. So I say good on them, go. Great effort, something to do and keep people busy and do something nice for the people of Nova Scotia at the same time. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You know, all sorts of groups and organizations are looking to give back during these very tough times for so many people. Sports teams are also right in there. While they're still kind of grappling with, are we going to play? Is the season going to go ahead? Uh, they are still doing their best to also support the community. Actually, we're going to be hearing about a Vancouver Whitecaps initiative coming up a little bit later this hour. Right now, though, we're going to talk about the Vancouver Canucks and what they are doing to give back. Our Nikki Reitmeyer had a chance to speak with Alex Oxenham, who is the executive director of the Canucks for Kids Fund and their Senior Director of Fan and Community Engagement. From the players to the staff, as an organization, how are the Canucks holding up right now? Well, thank you for asking. You know what, we're doing well. It's uh, obviously this is so unprecedented and it's not just impacting us, it's impacting the whole world and we're hanging in and we're doing everything we can to help the community and engage with our fans as much as we can through unique ways that we wouldn't normally be able to do. So it's been, you know, it's hard on everyone, but I think we're lucky and we're doing well so far. And we're really grateful for our fans that are engaging with us. And it's been, it's been a unique time. <laughs> That's for sure. But we're okay. Yeah. Ain't that the truth, eh? Well, I know that for the Canucks, fan interaction is such a big part of what you guys do. And that extends to the charity work that you guys do as well. And my goodness, in these times, we know that people need the assistance now more than ever before. And you guys have been giving back in a few different ways. I've seen that your mascot, Finn, has been out in the community helping people celebrate their birthdays. Yeah, Finn is just the absolute best. He is our greatest ambassador. And since this started, he's been out doing anything and everything he can to bring a smile to someone's face or just say hi and most importantly, thank our healthcare heroes. And it started, you know, right away. I think we got an email about obviously all these kids' birthday parties are being canceled. And he decided to do some drive-bys. I mean, you'd sort of seen that a bit out there. And he jumped right in and he's been driving all over Metro Vancouver, waving and saying hi to kids of all ages, really. They're, uh, he's not just doing kids' birthday parties. He's done a lot of adult birthday parties as well. And he just drives by, has a wave, takes a few pictures and safely social distances from the birthday boy or girl, but it's been great. And he's been having a lot of fun and it's, it's really important, you know, not only to the kids, but for all of us, just seeing everything he's doing. Oh, I love that. Okay. Let's talk about another way that you're giving back. You're making a huge financial contribution. Yeah. So we typically, the Connects for Kids Fund, we are a granting organization and we do all our granting in the off season, sort of mid to late June or early July. But obviously, the need is huge right now. We consider ourselves part of BC's biggest family, right? Like Canucks fans are everywhere, all over this province. And our family needs us now more than ever. So we were very fortunate that we had a great year. Our fans are the most generous, I think, in the league. And we have money to give. So we wanted to do something now and not wait until the off season. So we started with our 50-50 a couple weeks ago, which our fans were just extraordinarily generous. That raised close to $500,000. And now the Connection Kids Fund Board is announcing a $500,000 gift to the community. Typically, we would fund primarily kids' organizations. Obviously, 
kids is in the name of our fund, but we wanted to broaden our reach right now because, again, this is impacting everyone. And if the family isn't whole, then that's not good for kids either. So we're looking at seniors. We're donating to a couple of organizations that are directly serving our seniors. Uh, we're nourishing the community. We're doing a few different food programs and donating to the Greater Vancouver Food Bank because food insecurity has increased so much and there's such a need out there and no one should go without a meal. No one should go without the basic necessities at the, at the very least to get them through a crisis like this. And then, of course, still looking at children and families and all that they need. Mental health has always been a big priority for the club. So Kids Help Phone, for example, their, their usership is up over 300% since this crisis started. So we'll be supporting them. And then, as I said, the families as a whole, we have a, a wonderful program, the Connect Family Education Center, and they rely on what they receive daily when they're able to come to school. Now that they're not, we need to take care of these families in their homes. Same goes for Crabtree Corner, which is a wonderful program of the YWCA. So we're really excited that we're able to do this. It's really important. These organizations are providing such important services to our communities that we want to do everything and anything we can to help them. And we'll continue to help. We're taking donations. Uh, We have a COVID-19 relief fund set up on our website. And as we raise more money, we will give more money. We're in great shape to still meet our annual needs that we donate to in the off-season, but hopefully we'll be able to do more. And because our fans are so amazing, they've been asking, so we're going to do another 50-50 probably towards the end of May. So we're excited, and, and these organizations are doing such important work, and the need is still there. This isn't going away anytime soon, so we're going to do everything we can to help all our fans who cheer for us throughout the season. Now they need us to cheer for them. That's awesome. And it's good to know that even though hockey's not on right now, I can still sit at home in my living room and play 50-50, which I desperately try to win with no luck every time I go to a Canucks game. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) And so you're part of this by playing our 50-50. I mean, that's what's really enabled us to be able to do this and and make this donation today of $500,000 because 50-50 is our biggest source of revenue to the Connects for Kids Fund. I mean, we have our several signature events, but 50-50, I mean, that's just, it's awesome that fans are just so involved and it's such a part of their game experience. And when we did the 50-50 a couple of weeks ago, we weren't really sure how it would go, but we were overwhelmed by the response, overwhelmed that fans have asked us to do another one. And the winner of the last 50-50 could not have been a more deserving winner during this time. So it just feels good all around. We, we need a few warm hugs these days. So uh, we're really excited to make this gift. You said that the winner was really well-deserving. Uh, who was the winner? Yeah, we actually we did uh, release her story on Connects.com, and it's a woman from Burns Lake, B.C., and, you know, we had sort of talked about, wow, I really hope this winner is deserving. I think everyone is deserving at some level right now. There's no one who has not been impacted by COVID-19, but this family in particular, her husband has been unable to work because he has a form of cancer that he is receiving treatment for. Their daughter is on the autism spectrum. Uh, she said they basically maxed out all their credit cards because none of them have been able to work. They've been self-isolating long before self-isolation was a buzzword. To say they had a need is an understatement. So 
there's so many people in need out there and this is one small way that we feel we can help. So it was a great story. That's fantastic. Well, Alex, thank you so much. Uh, Let's stay in touch. I'd love to hear more about how the Canucks are doing this summer. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your support. And again, hey, next time we do a 50-50, make sure you buy your ticket. I certainly will. Can you please put in a good word for me with the 50-50 gods? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we'll try. You and everybody else, Nikki Reitmeyer. That is Nikki talking with Alex Oxenham, who's the executive director of the Canucks for Kids Fund and their senior director of fan and community engagement. This is Mornings with Simi. Straight down the middle. It went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook just a wee, wee bit. Mornings with Sunnets on 980 CKNW. Well, does that put you in the mood to do a little golfing? Well, good news is that in Vancouver today, you might be able to do that. McCleary and Fraserview Golf Courses reopened today. So does the Van Dusen Botanical Gardens, but... It is not going to be business as usual. And there are things that you need to know before you try going to Van Dusen or before you try to book a tea time. So let's find out what those things are. Joining us now is Malcolm Bromley, the general manager of the Vancouver Park Board. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure, Cindy. Thanks for hosting me. How much planning has gone into this to get to this point today? Uh, a lot more than went into... Uh the planning required to close it, I'll tell you, you have to be very thoughtful. There's no uh, guidebook or guideline on this. We we did consult with uh, Vancouver Coastal Health and Dr. Patty Daly. She's been terrific and her team and telling us things to think about. Golf courses were not closed by the province. Uh, we did that voluntarily at the beginning of the pandemic out of an abundance of caution while we figured things out. And uh, as we start to look at things that we can reopen, golf seemed to be one of the... Uh, more logical ones because of the place that it, it occurs. It's 100 acres mm-hmm. after uh, people play, they fan out. So we had to put some measures in place, though, that made it different and extra safe. So if you arrive uh, at the golf course, uh, you're asked to wait in your car until your tee time. Uh, tee times are spread out almost double the time between groups now so that there's a group on the green uh, finishing before a group tees off. Uh, when you get to the uh, pro shop, only one person goes in to pay. Um, golf carts, if you choose to take an electric cart, only one person per cart. There are no ball washers, no rakes on the course, any touch surfaces. Uh, There are demarcations uh, painted on the ground in temporary paint at each tee deck so that uh, each player stands in their designated area to ensure social and physical distancing. And then after the round, um, people are asked to get in their car and leave. The restaurants are closed. There's no uh, 19th hole. Um, we're just going to start with golf and uh, take it from there. I'd say the last most creative thing you would see if you played was we put a little piece of a pool noodle in each cup so that the putt would roll in about half or three-quarters of the ball, but you wouldn't have to reach down in the cup and touch the surface. So, so where did you get all, all of the guidance for doing this? Was there and something that you looked to, or did you just sit down and decide this makes the most sense? A combination. Um, I think the, uh, the golf um, sport, both the BC Golf um, uh, amateur body has been terrific, as well as the club owners associations. I've been in constant communication with the general managers of golf. I, I'm the general manager of the park board. Each golf course typically has their own general manager. We've talked about uh, practices and measures. So 
some uh, of the measures we learned from courses in the United States, some of them in the Valley. Some courses in the Valley did not close. Um, and we looked at what's the best practice, what did we discard, what should we try, what should we uh, create ourselves. And it will be a learning process. I ask people to be patient, have fun. I have a lot of confidence in in Vancouverites and in the golf community to, to do this properly mm. and continue to, I guess, lead the country in how you do things like this. Let's talk about Van Dusen because I know, you know, if you're like Ooh. me, you love to see flowers and I'm sure lots of people would like to go to Van Dusen and see what's happening, mm-hmm. but you, you can't just drive up and walk in. No, we needed to think of a way to regulate flow so that we didn't have a flood of, of people wanting to go there. It's a beautiful time of year. It's the best time to go see Van Dusen other than the Christmas lights. Um, and so you have to, uh, book a time online, uh, get a ticket. If you're a member of the Van Dusen Botanical Garden Association, who's a great partner of ours, you have to reserve your time as well, even though you don't have to pay because you're a member. Um, and then your designated time arrives and social distancing practice are, are put in place there, including uh, some one-way paths so that you don't uh, congest coming back and uh, have a pinch point where people go in two different directions. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's not as complicated uh, at Van Dusen um, uh, as it perhaps was at golf. Um, and and uh, we, we sold, I think, 300 tickets in the first hour. And the last uh, data I got yesterday was 2,700 members had booked the time to go see it. So there's a pent-up demand wow. and, and a real passion to get back there. And so you've already got then a couple of thousand people who are, like, angling to go to Van Dusen. Is that this weekend? Mm-hmm. That's right. And golf filled up in uh, about a half an hour for the two courses. We opened two of the three just to test our system because mm-hmm. we were, you know, using Langara to produce uh, food hampers for people on the downtown east side. About 700 people get fed each day out of there. But we think there's a way, uh, once we get this refined, probably within a week to 10 days, we can uh, look at bringing Langara back online as well. So, Malcolm, are you also being kind of extra careful here, knowing that a lot of other jurisdictions are probably carefully watching what the Vancouver Park Board is doing right now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was on a call with my peers across the country this week, general managers in the large cities in Canada, Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary, and the like. And, um, you know, a few of them mentioned that they kind of watch what we're doing. Our weather is a little ahead of them, um, Mm -hmm. but we're also... We, we have a park board, which we're very fortunate. We have elected commissioners, as you know. That gives us kind of the nimbleness to uh, focus on one thing. Uh, the commissioners focus on parks and recreation. They don't have to focus on uh, a, a myriad of things that other elected officials do. So as a result, we're creative. We're nimble. I got a great team of parks people, recreation people. And if anyone's going to do it right, uh, it's going to be Vancouver. Well, good luck. I know a lot of people thank are hoping that this goes successfully and people keep their distance and still manage to enjoy themselves. So, Malcolm, thank you for your time. You're welcome, Simi. Have a good day. This is Mornings with Simi. We, I believe, have uh, come uh, to a uh, proposed arrangement uh, that, uh, that will uh, also honour the, the protocols of the... Yeah, of the Wasotan um, people and clans. That was Federal Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Carolyn Bennett. The province and the federal government have reached a memorandum of understanding with hereditary leaders of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. We don't know a lot about what that means, like what's in this memorandum, what does this mean moving forward, but here's what we do know, that elected chiefs of the Wet'suwet'en Nation are expressing a lot of frustration about that. Let's find out why. Joining us now is Maureen Luggy, who's a Wet'suwet'en First Nation 
elected chief. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning. What concerns do you have about what you've heard about this? Well, the first thing is that uh, prior to the pandemic, that uh, with the state of emergency that was called for British Columbia in March, uh, we had a process that was in place, and uh, we met as a clan mem- as a clan group in- within our community, and we met with members of Wet'suwet'en, the office of Wet'suwet'en, and we did set another date to meet because we were not satisfied with the MOU as it was presented to us. And we had scheduled another date to meet uh, internally as a community. And we said that we would go over the MOU and have our own internal discussion again. And then we would move forward with another meeting with the representatives from the office of Wet'suwet'en. Neither of these have taken place. And, uh, we now have had to learn publicly through the media. We have not received any information from the Office of Wet'suwet'en, nor have we received any information from Scott Fraser or Carolyn Bennett that this was moving forward. We have received no indication whatsoever. So you're saying so, the elected chiefs don't know anything about this agreement, but the hereditary chiefs do? Uh, we know about the agreement. Uh, what I'm saying is that we had a process in place prior to COVID-19 being, uh, you know, where the state of emergency was called in the province. And so that put a hold on all of our discussions and our meetings. And uh, so we were not able to move forward because uh, we could, we had to start practicing uh, safe distancing and staying home. And so we could not have any more gatherings. And so that's what hindered the process. However, we had an understanding that after uh, this was over that we could start to meet again. In fact, I received a letter from Scott Fraser on April 1st indicating, sorry, indicating the very thing that I have said is that uh, once this was all over with respect to COVID-19, that we would be, uh, we would have that opportunity to have full engagement and consultation. And so now we're learning as of yesterday at four o'clock that, uh, that they're setting a date to sign. And uh, I think many of the clan members and community members, elected leaders, are completely appalled and shocked that this is moving forward without our input. Now, have you heard anything from the hereditary chiefs on this as well? Like, why wouldn't they want the elected chiefs to also be included and make sure that you're included in this process? Well, the hereditary chiefs that uh, that are involved in this are board members of a registered society called the Office of Wet'suwet'en. And so I received a letter after four o'clock yesterday from them advising us that uh, they're signing this, but it was not before. It was not before the announcement. And uh, we had heard uh, rumors that it was potentially being signed. And so I inquired of them if this was an actual fact. And they did not inform us until after four o'clock yesterday when the announcement was made. And so uh, we're not only elected leaders, we're clan members. And uh, we have many hereditary chiefs within our respective Wet'suwet'en communities that also uh, felt like they did not have a say. And we were all taken by surprise yesterday. So what is the community then saying? I would imagine that this is, this is causing a lot of concern. It is of great concern because they didn't follow the proper process. Carolyn Bennett, Scott Fraser, and uh, representatives of the board of directors of the Office of Wet'suwet'en did not follow proper process of keeping us informed. And uh, 
adequately consulting us and uh, letting us know that this was moving ahead. So do, does this, do you think, impair the whole process? Uh, can you abide by this, whatever is in this memorandum of understanding, if the elected chiefs weren't part of the process? Well, as far as it looks right now, there was no valid ratification process of the MOU. So either the government was misled or they are negligent in releasing the joint statement from yesterday. And uh, what the law requires is that government is to always act honorably in its dealings with Indigenous people. And by failing to engage in an open and inclusive process, both Canada and B.C. have acted in bad faith and brought the honour of the Crown into disrepute. And so the next steps that we consider... Sorry, I'm just uh, outside right now to see okay. all that traffic. Yeah. Um, so what we consider the, ne- the necessary next steps are for all of those uh, levels of government and uh, the Office of Wet'suwet'en is to withdraw the statement, the joint statement, until all of us have been properly consulted. And uh, right now, uh, you know, we are, we are not going to support this until uh, they consider what we are saying. Now, Maureen, you said either they were negligent or they were misled. What do you mean by that? We can only speculate as to why the government moved forward with this when we had a process in place of which we were being consulted as communities. Uh, We invited the Office of Wazowatan to our community in March. Uh, I think it was the second week of March, and we began discussions on the MOU. We had great concerns about the MOU as it stood, and uh, so... Uh, we did not communicate to government that uh, we were ready, that right. we were satisfied with this MOU. We received a letter from Scott Fraser advising us that none of this was moving ahead uh, until after COVID-19 right. and until we were all adequately consulted. So where did, where did they get this information from that we supported this? All right, Maureen, thank you very much for talking to us about it this morning. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. That's Maureen Leggy, who's a Wet'suwet'en First Nation elected chief. Elected chiefs not happy with the fact that hereditary chiefs have uh, signed and announced this memorandum of understanding with the provincial government. And as you heard Maureen point out there, the elected chiefs didn't find out until after the announcement had been made. Uh, so there'll be more to come on that story, uh, definitely in the days ahead. So many questions about that agreement and really what it all means.